Go ahead and find 1 Timothy chapter 2 with me. 1 Timothy chapter 2. One of my mentors, Ricky Jenkins, had the uh, philosophy that on the uh, Sunday after a gospel meeting, that in general it's a good idea to keep it short. And uh, so uh, this evening we just got one question, and it's not going to be terribly long, uh, but I'm just going to leave it there and uh, not, <clears throat> not uh, tire, uh, tire the uh, seat of your pants anymore. So the question is, what does 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8 mean? Short and sweet, just like I like. This is 2, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. Simple question, uh, one that definitely deserves our attention. The place to begin, I think, is, is to put this verse in the context of, of the letter it appears in. So 1 Timothy is a letter Paul wrote to Timothy as Timothy worked in the city of Ephesus. Um, and as he worked there in, in the church in Ephesus, Paul gave him instructions about how he wanted things to go in that local church, how, they things, how things should go. It's really centered around the life of the local church, 1 Timothy. And in this letter, he is constantly saying things like he says in this verse. He's saying things like, I urge this, and I desire this, and I do not permit this, over and over again. And the focus of most of Paul's urgings has, has to do with bringing order and holiness to the church. Um, throughout the letter, Paul's instructing Timothy about handling teachers of error, handling those with malicious motives who want to take control of the church. He's giving him directions on what the qualification and work of elders and deacons are. He's giving Timothy a curriculum of growth for himself as a preacher of the gospel. Here's how you should do your work. Here's what you should focus on. In chapter 2, his focus is on prayer and public worship. He begins in 2 and verse 1 by urging prayer for all men. Um, And in the course of that, he says this more specifically on the subject of prayer. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. Maybe we should first notice he is singling out men. I desire that in every place the men should pray. He's not using men here in the general sense, as in mankind, because in verse 9, women will be addressed specifically, which makes us see in verse 8, he's addressing men as a gender specifically. And he says to men, here's what I expect from you. I want you to pray, and I want you to pray in a certain manner, lifting holy hands. And I think it's really that phrase which is at the core of the question um, in fact, I know that because me and the questioner talked about it some. What is, Paul, what is Paul saying in that little expression, lifting holy hands? What does it mean to lift up holy hands? And, and as men especially, who apparently should be doing that, praying with holy hands, it should put us on the edge of our seat. Is that how I'm praying? Lifting holy hands. Now, the, the main way I want to spend our time is to point out that this phrase, lifting holy hands or lifting clean hands, is unoriginal. Paul did not invent this expression or this idea. He is really referencing a well-known concept and image used throughout the Old Testament. So I want to take you on a quick trip through the Bible, just about four passages where this is used. This is uh, Psalm 24, very quickly. Psalm 24. <clears throat> I'm not going to venture an explanation of 1 Timothy 2.8 until we see a bunch of other places that use a phrase like this. And I think the meaning of 1 Timothy 2.8 will become clear. This is Psalm 24 and verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? (coughs) Who shall stand in his holy place? Here's the answer. 
He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He, the person from verse 4, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So the image here is of religious pilgrims making their way up to Mount Zion to worship on one of the holy days. And as they prepared to ascend the mountain, they may well have recited or even sung a sort of call and response song like this to teach each other and remind each other important things about their worship as they prepare. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? What kind of person is fit for this awesome task we're about to undertake? And the response comes in verse 4. Here is the kind of person worthy to ascend God's holy hill, worthy to enter God's presence in worship. The kind of person fit to enter God's place for worship is the one who has clean hands, verse 4, among other things. Our hands are what we do to, are used to do things with. Our hands are what we use to work with. They are what we use to make our living with. And in order to be worthy to come worship God, those hands you've used for everything else in your life must be in a state of cleanness, holiness. So what's the point being made in this little call and response song of Psalm 24? Well, that going to worship is not an empty ritual. It's not a one day a week bone we throw to God to keep him off our back so we can live how we want. It is rather, worship is a culmination of a whole life of holiness. I'm busy doing everything in verse 4 in my everyday life. That is what prepares me to go worship God on His holy hill. Worship is not the time where we make weekly amends with God and get ourselves clean. That way we can go out into the world and make our hands dirty again. And then come back into God's house to make them clean and repeat over and over. Into the world and then into God's presence. Into the world and into God's presence. Dirty, clean, dirty, clean. That's not how it works. We bring holy hands to God. We bring a holy way of life. We bring holy dealings with other people. A holy character before God in worship. And the Psalms, I'm not going to belabor this point. I'll just mention the Psalms are full of this image. That the worshiper who comes before God must always come with clean hands. Holy hands. To mention a few, Psalm 63, Psalm 119, Psalm 134, Psalm 141, Psalm 143. All of them use this image of clean hands or holy hands. So with that, let's go to a negative example. This is Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. There's a powerful passage at the beginning of Isaiah where the prophet really excoriates Israel for doing the opposite of lifting clean and holy hands. They come before God with dirty hands. Uh, The opening prophecy of Isaiah is all about the wickedness of Judah. They didn't listen to or obey God. They were oppressing the poor and taking advantage of the weak to enrich themselves. They were worshiping idols. Uh, Things were just in a terrible state among God's people. But the funny thing we see about that in this opening oracle is that during this horrible sinful time, those same sinful people never stopped worshiping. Even as they ignored God and flaunted His law in every which way in their everyday lives, they still managed to come before God, come to the temple, come to worship, come to offer the sacrifices. And what we have here is God describing how He feels about His people, going through the motions of worship while utterly disregarding 
everyday obedience. This is Isaiah 1 and verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? In other words, you think you're worshiping, but all you're doing is trampling in my courts, having footsteps in this geographical area. That's all you're doing. Verse 13. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the callings and convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. God cringes, he says. I cringe when you come into my presence because of how you live. This is verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. So, they did the sacrifices. They came to worship. They burned the incense. They kept the feast days and the holy days. Check mark, check mark, check mark. But God says, I'm sick of it. And I'd wish, if you're going to keep living that way, that we'd stop the charade. All of it is a mockery to me because you're living like atheists in every other moment of your life. God takes no delight when, when people who worship Him go home satisfied that they've done their penance and then live, live like reprobates every other moment of their lives. God says He can't stand when people like that come to His temple, verse 13. Your attempts at keeping the holy days, verse 14, is a burden to me. Verse 15, don't lift up hands and worship that are bloody from violence and sin. That is not what I want. What does God want? Verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. There's an idea. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Now, of course, God wanted his people to do the sacrifices, to keep the feasts of the law of Moses. God was the one who told them to do that in the first place. What he was sick of was them living their wicked lives and then thinking it would all be okay because we went to the temple on the Sabbath. Worship becomes a mockery when we're practically atheists in every other area of our life. God says worship is only really meaningful when it's a part of a whole tapestry of discipleship in your life, a whole tapestry of holiness in your life, a whole tapestry of care for others, a whole tapestry of personal purity. And clean hands in this image are symbolic of that everyday holiness we bring before God. And dirty, blood-covered hands are an image of a life without discipleship that somehow thinks we can come before God. God says, you come before me with clean hands, not dirty ones. Let's go to the New Testament, James chapter 4. This will be our last stop before we return to 1 Timothy. James chapter 4. Paul is not the only New Testament author to pick up on this image of lifting holy hands before God. This is James chapter 4 and verse 8. <clears throat> James 4 and verse 8. James 4 and verse 8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. 
James is telling us to purify our hearts and to change our lives so that we may approach God in purity. There needs to be, he says, mourning and humbling and grieving that takes place as we acknowledge our lives are not what they should be. His point is we cannot approach God with dirty hands, hands we've been using all week to work evil schemes and to pen deceitful words and and do all the awful things we could do with our hands. God says, I don't want hands like that performing. I want hands that have been cleansed. James says if we want to approach God and be near him, we must do so with an awareness of the state of our hands. I must not presume I can come into God's presence willy-nilly. The holy God desires a holy people. And if I am not holy, he says, I need to grieve over my sin. And I need to seek his purification if I want to be, admit to, if I want to be admitted into his presence. And so with that, let's go back to 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8. I think it's only now we're really ready to open up 1 Timothy 2.8 with an appreciation for this unoriginal phrase, holy hands. The point, first thing I guess we should notice, I don't think the point is some magical posture we strike where we pray with, you know, what are holy hands? Are they like this? Are they like this? Are they up high? Are they down lower? That's, that's not the point here. The point is everyday holiness we've been living that makes worship merely an extension of our holy lives. Worship is not a substitute for a holy life. It's an extension of a holy life. Holy hands is that holy life. All the things we've been doing this week with our hands. We've done this in a holy way. So listen again. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger and quarrel. Paul tells Timothy to instruct men. And the reason I think he tells them, tells them to instruct men is because men are the one who lead God's people in public worship and prayer. The next few verses about women will concern their conduct, their, their manner in public worship. And so when he speaks to men, he speaks to those who lead God's people in public worship. And he says, when you pray to God, you want to be able to do so having lived in a way that honors him. That we would be before God's people and God himself to pray This is not out of character for us. It shouldn't be. That we give thought to holiness on Sunday in the worship service, that we give thought to holiness on Sunday is not out of the ordinary. It shouldn't be because I was busy doing that all week, thinking about holiness. I was busy being holy, keeping my hands pure and clean at work and at home and in all the ways that I deal with people throughout the week. I have been concerned with holiness. Paul tells Timothy that the men who lead God's people in prayer should be men whose prayers grow out of whole lives that are based on purity and based on holiness. Lifting holy hands in prayer means God expects prayers that are a part of a life that are already committed to Him. Prayer is just an extension of a life. I'm already living for God. To put it another way, I don't pray to make up for my lack of righteousness and holiness. I pray because I am righteous. I pray because I am holy, or at least I'm trying to be. Now, I don't think any of this is to say that in order to pray, men, in order to lead public prayer, we must be perfect. We must be morally perfect. Because we have to admit, if that were the requirement, then we would all just sit here silently and no one would ever lead us in prayer. But I do think it is to say that the culture of Jesus' church is a culture in which his people are truly devoted, and truly holy. When his people come to him in prayer, they are a people consistently not in sin, 
but a people consistently in holiness, people consistently in righteousness. So let me try to tie, tie some of this up. What I've done is kind of walked you through, shown my work in a way. Here's, here's I think, the passages we need to wrestle with. Let me try to bring some of this together. As I've tried to digest all of this, it's really led me, especially, um, because I am someone who stands before God's people for several hours each week. And so it has really caused me to seriously evaluate my own approach to leading worship and to leading prayer. Isaiah, David, Paul, James, all understood in order to approach God in worship, the worshiper must have clean and holy hands. Now, this was richly symbolized in Judaism because in order to prepare to worship in Judaism, worshipers literally washed their hands in preparation for worship. But prophets like Isaiah stressed that symbol was supposed to stand for something, not be the extent of their cleansing of their hands. Isaiah told Israel that it's really the everyday holiness of God's people. That's really what prepares you for worship. That's really what cleanses your hands. And for men who lead in public worship, this issue is doubly serious. We who stand before God's people not only approach God's throne and worship ourselves, we purport to lead everyone else into God's throne to worship. And in a sense, when we enter that throne room leading the way, the first thing that enters as we enter God's throne room is our hands. And Paul wants us to ask, before we do that, What are the state of my hands? Because God can see through that holy look we put on our face, that serious look. He can see through the hear through the pious tone we use to cover up with cover up lives that might not match that pious tone we strike in our prayers. So all of that has led me to conclude there may well be a time when it is not appropriate for a man to lead God's people in worship. Hypothetically, that could come true. Were, for example, the elders to be aware of some situation where some man was deeply involved in sin unrepentantly. I'm not talking about someone struggling with sin, someone struggling to be righteous and perhaps starting in sorrow. I'm talking about someone involved in deep, unrepentant sin. The elders would be well within their rights to say, I don't think you should be leading God's people in worship right now. Because if I am head over heels involved in sin, unrepentantly, if Satan has got a hold on me at this moment, do I need to be leading everyone else in prayer? Or do I need everyone else to be praying for me? And I certainly don't need to pretend like I'm Mr. Holy Hands at church if I'm living a double life the rest of the week, do I? You know, even Jesus said there is a time when worship should be set aside in order to attend to more pressing matters of discipleship. This is what he says in Matthew 5 and verse 23. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, here's what you do. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus said it would be the height of hypocrisy for sinful anger to persist between brothers and that anger continue simmering during a worship service. How ridiculous to think we could have all of this unaddressed sin present and somehow approach God's throne as if everything is hunky-dory. He says, you go address the thing that's not hunky-dory first, and then you'll be prepared to come into God's presence. And if I may be a little bit bold, I actually think the Catholics might be onto something here. 
So it is the practice, it used to be, and I think it still is among especially devout Catholics, that before they receive communion, before they can receive communion, they must first go to confession. Now, there's a lot about all of that that stands behind it that I disagree with, needless to say. Like, for example, how their practice of confession is done, how it involves a man granting forgiveness, setting conditions for forgiveness in a way I think only God can. But at the very least, there seems to be an understanding in that, pra- in that practice. There seems to be an understanding that in order to worship, my unaddressed sin must first be dealt with before I can step into the presence of a holy God. I think, I think there might be something to that. Now, getting and thinking over this question has, has actually been pretty, uh, pretty sobering to me. Part of my goal, especially you men, is to sober you. In worship, we approach the throne of a holy God. Do you remember in Isaiah 6? I, Isaiah is presented with the prospect of approaching God's throne. And he's in God's throne room, literally. And this is what he says. He doesn't say how wonderful this is, how neat to be in God's presence. This is what Isaiah says. He says, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah understood this is not something to be done lightly. In order to approach a holy God, we must be a holy people. And before I presume to lead God's people into God's presence, I want to make the hands I lift before him on behalf of the congregation, I want to make sure those hands I lift are holy and clean. So as we wrap up, allow me to suggest, especially to you men who lead in worship, let me suggest a revolutionary thing. That in preparation for leading God's people in worship in whatever way, that you do at least two things. Number one, that you first think about how holy you've been this week. Think about that first. And number two, after you did that, please confess and repent of your sins before you lead God's people in worship. Those are the two things. Is that a lot to ask? Is it too much to ask? You know, the the fact that 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 was a revolutionary thought to me, that I never thought about something like that before, probably says some pretty poor things about me, that I wasn't seriously thinking about my own life of holiness before I dared lead God's people in worship. Should the suggestion that we be regularly examining the state of our lives and that we be regularly confessing our sins, should that be a newsflash to any disciple? Should that be a bridge too far for any of us? I don't think so. But I think Paul's word should sober any of us who dares to lead God's people into worship. It's a meaningful thing. It's a deep thing. And we dare not approach a holy God with unclean hands. Thank you for the question. And uh, i got another one this morning that I'm excited about. But uh, your questions are always welcome. I can't make promises about when we get to them. But maybe there's someone here this evening that realizes the state of your own hands is not what they should be that you're in no state to enter the presence of God. And the idea of doing that for all eternity, um, the great hope of the Christian is is actually a point of fear for you, that you're unsure about that because of the way you've been living. The good news is God always welcomes those who are willing to confess their sins, those willing to repent. He's ready to cleanse, ready to make you whole, right now as we stand and sing.
Oh, brain.